Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everybody, to the 20th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Number 20. Been doing this for 20 weeks. It doesn't seem like it's been going on for that long. No, it doesn't. No, it hasn't. So I know that... Uh, that it's been we, fun for us. Yeah, it has. It has. It's been fun for us, and um, hopefully everyone that listens gets um, some good information out of it. So uh, I guess here's to 20 more. That's right. Yeah. It'll be, the next thing you know, we'll be at 40. <laughs> at 40, yeah. Yeah, and then 50, and then 100 before you know it. That's right. Um, so as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are going to be as of the market close on October 31st, um, just to give everyone um, month end numbers for October. That's good. Um, so for the S&P 500 index uh, was up. 2.04% for the month of October and up 22.84% for the year. Uh, the Dow up 0.59% for the month of October and up 19.95% for the year. So the Dow did lag most of the major indexes uh, for the month of October. Um, the NASDAQ up 3.66% for the month and up 27.10% for the year. Uh, the IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 was up 2.72% for the month and up 19.92% for the year. Um, and the international indexes, I did not write down to record today, Matt. So international did um, have a pretty good month, I believe. I think it was up over uh, 2%. So that has come back. Recently, on the back of the weak dollar, um, so which we uh, talked about a couple which, of podcasts yeah, ago, which we did. Um, the three-month Treasury uh, currently sitting at one point five six percent. The two-year Treasury yield at one point six one percent. The ten-year Treasury yield currently at one point eight one percent. Matt, so we're no longer inverted major um, Treasuries that we tend to track. Yeah. I mean, on the 10 year, I think you've had some upward movement um, in that yield. Um, you had some uh, pressure on, on treasury prices as stocks have moved higher uh, in October. And I think it got as high as almost 1.85, 1.86% on the yield. And it's coming a little bit back down as you kind of highlight it there, mm -hmm. but um, still shows we're no longer inverted. And uh, all of a sudden, once, once that happens, you know, it went from every other article we were reading had to do with some sort of inverted yield curve and what that means. Mm -hmm. And it's like, now it's nothing. quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this has been highlighted too, because, um, banks and financials have been outperforming, uh, most of the other sectors, uh, so far since this has kind of been happening. So it yeah. all kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just more profitability for banks. That's right. Um, so yeah, so we'll move on to the, um, big news and headlines, current events from the previous week. And, um, we're still rolling through, uh, the end of Q3 earnings season. 
and again, continues to have mostly positive uh, news, which I think has also aided in propelling uh, the markets to new highs in addition with um, the no longer inverted yield curve. Um, and also to back that as well, last week uh, when we recorded, the Fed had an announcement of what they were doing with interest rates uh, last week, and they did in fact lower rates by uh, 0.25%. Um, and they were a bit more cautious. I know that you noted, Matt, about more cuts going into the future, um, but they did lower rates by the, the 25 basis points that I just pointed out. Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. And the exact quote that uh, uh, caught my eye that I wanted to share with listeners, and this is from Chairman Powell. He's our Federal Reserve Chairman here in the U.S. And I quote, The current stance of interest rate policy is likely to remain appropriate as long as the economy expands moderately and the labor market stays strong. Inflation, which remains below the Fed's 2% target, provides more flexibility in monetary policymaking. Hmm. So the key word there is interest rate policy is likely to remain appropriate. That's the, the key wording there that a lot of people, including us, you know, gravitated towards. Yeah. And so I think the markets digested that. Um, I think that statement lowers the probability of another cut at the next meeting in the middle of December. I'm not saying it's not probable, but I think it's a lot more uh, unlikely to occur would be the best way to say it. Yeah. Um, so just throwing it out there. Um, I'm going to go on the next topic. Yep. Next topic is um, I am going to do the best I can not to spike the ball too hard on this. <laughs> but on uh, the Apex Summit did, in fact, get canceled, as I had speculated. Uh, positive news is that U.S. and China both came out and said they're planning another location to sign the phase one trade deal. Rumor mill, it actually might be in the U.S., they're saying. Really? Yeah, that's what they're no, saying. I didn't hear that. Yeah. But it might not be till December. Now, um, since I was kind of speculating for some time about this summit not happening, uh, I want to share with listeners what's the next thing that the market is not talking about right now that I think will come front and center very soon. So I'm going to speculate the next topic is going to be um, a possible government shutdown. So um, the current uh, funding is good through the end of November, Mark. And um, what some of the listeners might not know is that um, the last um, spending bill was passed right before the impeachment inquiry began at the end of September. Right. Now, why this is important is both sides are not agreeing on practically anything. So the only thing that could save us from a government shutdown before the end of the year is the calendar. The fact that no politician wants to shut the government down before the holiday season, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. But I think this is what's going to happen. This is my opinion. My opinion is they'll kick the can till the sometime in the first quarter, and most likely, I'm speculating, my opinion, they'll have another shutdown um, sometime after in Q1. After the first of the year. After the yeah. first of the year. Okay. Okay? So no one's talking about this, and I think this is the next thing all of a sudden that will be front and center. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And then just to go back to um, China-U.S. trade, um, there are some nuggets that came out this morning that um, 
over several phases, uh, China has come out and said that the U.S. has agreed to uh, remove tariffs. That's a big. That's a big point. So, and the market hasn't opened yet. It's about two minutes away from the open, and we'll let you guys know when when it does here. But um, I know the futures were up pretty nicely. I mean to continue not only with a trade deal but actually have de-escalation in the actual tariffs that's a that's big yeah and I, I, and I don't know if trump has confirmed this or not i haven't seen anything from that but um that, that came was, from the chinese side yeah that, that came from the chinese side this morning big yeah. Yeah. my opinion yeah okay yeah um one more thing october uh we had strong jobs report um came in um at 128,000 jobs created exceeded um, economist consensus and expectations. Um, August and September figures uh, were revised upward by a total of 95,000. So not only did October beat, but the revisions came in nice too. Yeah, I, I just, I, I always chuckle when I see revisions because it's like that the, the government can just go back and, and you know, revise all of these economic data. It's just like, you know, it, the, you first, the, the first report could have been 30,000, but, oh, we made a little bit of a mistake, and it's actually 95,000. Know? <laughs> well, the funny thing is they're going back and they're revising all the way back to August. Yeah, I, I don't get that. It's one of those things where, you know, we don't know what's going into the cooking. Right. right? We don't know the recipe, yeah. how they do it, how they revise it. Mm-hmm. Um that but just at least the headline number was, was good. positive. Yeah. So how I do um, following uh, the breadcrumbs is this could lead to another uh, point of a strong holiday spending period, right? Because the more people that are employed, the more we see wage growth. Um, one could speculate that that could be a positive for holiday spending. Yeah. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to move on to uh, tweets, research articles that we found interesting. First one I want to throw out there, Mark, is from Braver Capital Management at a research note on November 1st, and it was around 5.30 uh, that evening. Um, During uh, Q3 earnings announcements, corporate leaders are optimistic in general about the consumer, with companies doing most of their business in the U.S. faring better than global firms. S&P 500 companies that earn more than 50% of their sales in the U.S. have seen their earnings slip by 0.8% year over year. Now, remember... We were talking a couple podcasts ago, Mark, about a really hard comparables to Q3 of last year. Yeah. Remember we were talking about that? Mm-hmm. So companies generating more than half of their sales overseas reported a decline year over year in Q3 of 9.1% in their earnings. Yeah. It's a pretty stark difference. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. I think still due to the strong dollar. Yes. Um, that, you know, we still and haven't seen a large move down yet. In but. very sluggish economies, say over in Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're barely above, I don't even know if they're 1% economic. Right. Growth. And I know later you're going to get into uh, an example of negative interest rates hasn't necessarily done what people thought it was going to do that kind of relates to that. So Correct, Mark. And then um, let's see here. Another quote from this um, note from Braver. With an economy that is driven by consumer spending, the current momentum has been strong enough to offset weakness in business spending, as well as tariffs and trade war uh, manufacturing issues. Americans remain well-employed, feel confident, and are poised to keep driving growth as we enter the holiday shopping season. Not my quote. Quote from Braver. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, It's hard to bet against a U.S. consumer that is, quote, fully employed, especially one bolstered by low interest rates, rising wages, and solid household balance sheets, end quote. 
And then Mark, you have any comments on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree with them on the on the full employment and low interest rates and rising wages that, you know, that's pretty good for, for an economy, I would think. And especially um, for the consumer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and the American consumer, you know, they're they're spenders. Yeah. Yeah. The balance sheet, I mean, there's so many different views on, on yeah. the balance sheet that debt's at all time highs, but the ratio maybe from income to debt maybe isn't. So it's yeah, just like hard to... Yeah, and you to... see all this stuff like uh, factors on auto debt is yeah. at an all-time high. Yeah. You know, I think I think a lot of stu- a lot of people can get into the weeds with that stuff where a lot of people really don't need to be, you know, yeah. giving weight that much weight to it. But, but overall, I, I thought I thought um, the correlation between, you know, companies that do most of their sales over 50% in the US versus uh, ones that generate more than 50% outside was interesting. And then I wanted to share those comments about the consumer. Yeah. And then really quick, uh, the market just opened up. Um, the S&P's up just under a half a percent and the Dow's up um, 0.6% just on the open. So strong open on uh, positive US-China trade. Love it. Uh, I got one more, Mark. This is from uh, Pacific Global on uh, November 1st, late, uh, came out at 8.45 p.m., and for those listeners who wonder uh, that we read research on a Friday night at 8.45, we do. <laughs> okay, uh, here's the quote. Several recent studies are concluding that negative interest rates have not stimulated economic growth. Sweden, one of the first countries to introduce negative interest rates, believes that the prolonged use of reduced consumer spending as citizens increase savings. Also, bank lending has not grown as expected. Sweden plans to increase interest rates in December, end quote. Um, I also like this comment on the research note, Mark, quote, the market bias is turning more positive with third quarter GDP remaining near 2%. A lower interest Fed funds rate and the prospect for an initial trade agreement. The mood is considerably different from the fourth quarter of last year. This week's new highs for the S&P and NASDAQ may provide further momentum, end quote. Hmm. So um, I know there's two different topics there. First, your comments, uh, if any, on the whole uh, negative interest rates. Uh, and now all of a sudden they're going to be raising them again. Yeah, I it it kind of just it's hard to wrap my head around the um, the note that said that um, the prolonged uh, use of negative interest rates has reduced consumer spending as citizens increase savings and i think the big thing there is you know if with deflation if something's going to get cheaper why why are you going to do it now yeah that's a good point and so i think i think where this comes into play and and this hit japan a couple decades ago you know if that piece of real estate i'm just going to use large numbers as an example that piece of real estate is valued today at a hundred million dollars Heck, I'm gonna wait another year. I'm gonna buy it for ninety-five. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah, that's a good point. Given an arbitrary example. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess just from looking at it on just a first glance, it's just like okay, if we have negative interest rates, you know, you're not getting anything in holding money in like a bank um, or like a CD or anything like that. Some so, of those countries, Mark, they're charging you to do that. Yeah. They're, so I mean, that yeah. So that's why banks are charging you to have yeah. deposits with them. Yeah, but so that's why just on the offset of just looking at it, but that makes sense if yeah. people are like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna, gonna wait. wait. Yeah, gonna wait for it. Yeah. How about your comment of anything about um, you know GDP where it's at and you know some of the um, catalyst? You know, this market is climbing this wall of worry right now. Yeah. You know, the market has its list of things it's been worried about for the last six months. Mm-hmm. Trade agreement, right? 
um, state of the U.S. consumer. Um, you know, all these things we've been talking about, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, some of these things are getting checked off the list short term, and it's it seems to us it's fueling this market higher. Right, yeah. And that's why I think um, just personally, I like to look at just price on a chart, and that kind of tells me what's going on and what's influencing the market. Um, so obviously, starkly different from the fourth quarter of last year, Oh yeah. Um, where you know, there this was point, something going on that people were, were not comfortable with. Yeah, okay? I mean, at this so point that, last year, you know, we were having one and a half, two percent movements daily. Yeah, yeah. Because at the, at the end of the day, that's all, you know, I think people really care about is, you know, am I making money or am I losing money? What goes into what's driving that? I don't think most people care about it. So um, just that people, you know, just shown by the price movements we're having so far in the fourth quarter that people are comfortable with where the market is and they see it going higher. Um, it wasn't the case last year and there was, you know, the 20% the drop. And so, you know, even me and you had the conversation. I was like, we were like, you know, is this going to be something where we need to change our stance right now? And then that is a whole nother conversation. But, um, you know, I think people can get a lot of information. What I'm trying to say, of just looking at price. Love it. What's what's baked into that. So Love it. Um, there was a note from uh, Bespoke Investment Group on November 1st. And, um, you know, we keep hearing, Matt, that people are calling this the longest bull market in history, right? Yeah, I know that we see it all the time. Yeah, we've talked about all these about, headline articles. Yeah, yeah, and we've talked about this before. And, you know, when did the bull market really start? People say it was from the, the low of 2009. Yep. And, you know, I've made the argument that it could be from clearing the high uh, that we made before 2007 and 2008. Yeah, when we retouched the high watermark. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, but on Bespoke's count, um, this is the second longest bull market in history with the first um, dating back to beginning in uh, 1987 and going through 2000. Um, that lasted 4,494 days, whereas they're marking this bull market starting on March 9th of 09 and up until this point now, which was 3,889 days. Um, so all those headlines are false. Yeah, yeah. So, again, just another another thing to throw out there when people you know talk about you know is this bull market the long long in the tooth type of thing? And I think I don't think you can judge a bull market based on just length. the length of it. Yeah, yeah. You know? I agree, Mark. And you yeah. you've talked about this several times on different podcasts. Yeah. So I agree with that point. The other thing I want to throw out there is just to reiterate a point that I made in last week's podcast, which is you know. We're going to have pullbacks, you know, so we're talking about this bull market that's been in existence since March of 09 to now, 3,889 days, right? We've had a lot of pullbacks, a lot of corrections. Last week, we highlighted there was 25 uh, pullbacks of at least 5% or more since that time period. And I think it's timely with the market making 52-week highs, optimisms coming back to the market. You know, greed factor. I just want to remind listeners that it is common to have pullbacks. Mm -hmm. I just want to, I just think it's, this it's is more common to have pullbacks than to not have pullbacks. There you go. All right. <laughs> so I just want to throw it out there. The market's not going to go straight up. People. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, and then another article that I read um, from Tom Boley on his blog called Trading Places. 
Um, this is from November 1st. Tom noted that the transportation services group broke out to an eight-month relative high um, or high relative to the S&P 500. So not just the transport services by their own price, but relative to the S&P 500, um, they've broken out to an eight-month high. And I see this as a bullish sign, Matt, because typically – when we see the major indices breaking out to new highs and we get follow through confirmation um, by particularly transports and small caps, the market seems to do very well. Yep. yep. Um, and we actually have a new feature up on the website now for show notes. Great job, um, Mark. To kind of show you guys what we're talking about uh, during the podcast when we mentioned something like this. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and post a chart that shows the correlation of transports and the Dow um, to show, you know, that correlation that once we get a breakout in the Dow, one of the major indexes, yep. and it's followed by a new high breakout by the transports, typically the next several um, months or couple of years is pretty bullish for the market, it looks like in this chart. So yep. um, it's notated by... Um, the dotted line, the dotted vertical line that you're going to see is the breakout to new highs by the Dow. Okay. And the solid vertical line is the breakout by the transports. Um, so you'll see the bullishness, um, you know, between those two lines and the follow through. So we haven't gotten follow through yet from the transports, but, um, you know, the short term over the past month, month and a half transports have uh, been strengthening. So what we've done, listeners, is if you go to the Jessup Wealth Management uh, website, and then at the top, you'll see a button for podcast. Uh, when you click on that tab, you're going to see uh, the show notes, what Mark is alluding to right now. Yeah, yeah. So okay. JessupWealthManagement.com, uh, podcast tab, hover over it, and then uh, there'll be a drop down for show notes. Excellent work. Okay. Um, so moving into the financial planning uh, topic of the week. This came from uh, Braver uh, Capital Management, and the article is titled Financial Planning Friday, Financial Planning in Your 40s. So uh, we're not trying to discriminate against everybody, anybody, but um, you know, th I thought they had a couple of good, easy steps. No, I think it's great. I mean, we're um, going to highlight things like, you know, maybe estate planning is more geared towards uh, retirees per mm -hmm. se. I think it's Right now, we, we cherry-picked one that's for people in their 40s. Yeah, and there are a couple of things that sometimes get left in the dust when it comes to um, figuring out all your finances. So I think No, this is, is a good, good article. One. Yeah. Um, so number one, they say protect yourself. Disability insurance can help protect your income if you are unable to work. Life insurance can help provide for your loved ones if you pass away. Health insurance is an absolute necessity. Homeowner's insurance is also key. And also consider a personal umbrella liability policy that is roughly equal to grow your growing net worth. So I think, like I said, this is one of the most underrated topics in the financial planning industry, Matt, um, but also the one of the most important um, because, you know, a lot of the times people are like insurance. It's just me lighting my money on fire and giving my premiums to the insurance company. Which most of the time, yeah, it is. Yeah. But for that freak accident that happens and, you know, you have a spouse and three or four kids, you need that coverage in place that, you know, if they're dependent on your income, then, you know. I hope you're wasting your money. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's how you have to look at it. Um, another thing that a lot of people don't have is disability insurance. Um, so obviously, if you get hurt on the job and unable to work, 
Um, you want to make sure that you still have some sort of income coming in the door, yep. whether it's 50% of your normal income. Um, you know, so if you have an employer that offers disability insurance, a hundred percent, I think people should be taking that. Oh yeah. Um, we talked about life insurance, health insurance, even though that is a tricky environment right now. Um, hopefully we get some more clarification on what's going to be changing with health insurance in the future. And then there's actually, I was reading an article, I can't remember who it was from, but there was a large number of people that have their house paid off and they got rid of their homeowner's insurance. And that really? just didn't really make sense to me because either way you're going to, you know, if something happens and a fire burns down oh your house, you're going to have to rebuild the house eventually. Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah. And then do you want to just touch on a personal umbrella liability policy, Max? I know a lot of times people really don't understand what that is. Yeah. So um, an umbrella policy goes above and beyond your home insurance coverage and your auto insurance coverage. Now, a lot of insurers are going to make you have, say, higher limits on your auto and home insurance. And then what happens is these umbrella policies are usually sold in million-dollar increments. So let's use an example of an auto policy. A lot of insurers are going to make you have uh, $300,000 of coverage, which is usually kind of the upper limit. And then let's say that you get into an auto accident and uh, you injure, it's your fault, and you injure a high income earner. You know, your policy is only covered, in my example, up to 300000 right? Right. So this umbrella policy then kicks in, in my example, for another million of potential coverage. Right. Why this is important is as you are accruing net worth, you got to protect that. And God forbid you get in an auto accident, it's your fault. You know, you want to have this coverage above that, and it's called an umbrella policy. So you can contact your uh, property and casualty company. They are usually very affordable. Um, wouldn't surprise me if it's two, three, four hundred bucks a year for a yeah. million dollars of coverage. But the kicker is, they're going to make you have higher limits on your auto and home. So there could be some additional costs there too. Yeah. However, if you do have some net worth. I would recommend that you have that coverage to protect it. Yeah, or at least I think this is a good would be a good point for people just to check and see what you have because a lot of times people got this stuff years and years Great ago point, and people Mark. are probably listening to this and they're like, you know what, I don't even really remember what I have. Yeah, I mean <laughs> they just their their premium payments yep. are on automatic. XYZ insurance um, company a statement comes every yeah. month or every quarter and it gets just filed away. Yeah, so just just review it and see what you have and make sure that you know you're you're properly insured. No, that's a good point. Um, number two is focus on retirement savings. So if you aren't already doing so, it's vital to begin contributing at least 10% of your pre-tax income or up to the annual limits, if you can afford it, to your retirement savings account. Um, consider bumping up your contribution percentage every time you see a, or you receive a pay raise. And we've talked about this before, Matt. Um, you know, we've talked about doing, you know, the automatic increase. So if you get a uh, cost of living adjustment or a raise by two or 3%, just put that extra amount into the 401k because you're not going to miss it. Yeah. I mean, at a very minimum, I call it the 1% rule. 1% mm -hmm. rule is if I sitting down with uh, someone who's just starting off in a 401k, let's say their monthly budget's tight. I sit there and say, let's just start at 1%. Okay. And then what we're going to do 
is we're going to set a reminder 12 months from now, and you're going to raise it by another 1%. Yep. And then 12 months after that, we're going to raise it by another one. Yeah. And then 10 years later, we're going to be at a 10% contribution rate. We do it in baby steps. They're not going to miss it in their paycheck. That is, I think, a way to overcome that. Yeah, exactly. And then if you combine that with also raising your contribution rate when you get these raises, you know, in 10 years, you could be at, you know, 25% based on your raises. The difference between uh, drinking champagne in retirement and, uh, you know, drinking cheap beer. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, Number three is invest outside of retirement accounts too. Um, Participating in your employer-sponsored retirement plan is important, but don't lose sight of these short and midterm goals that you'll be spending money on before age 59 and a half. Consider contributing to a brokerage account to grow a portion of your savings above what you'd earn in interest with a bank account. If you have children, look into setting up a 529 plan for those future educational expenses. Um, So this is great for saving, you know, for example, a brokerage account, which is after-tax money. Yep, so hit your checking account, and then you make an investment after that. Right, and this is great for saving towards goals um, that you want to complete before 59 and a half, right? Um, Because when you're contributing to the retirement accounts, like a regular 401k or traditional IRA, you can't touch that money until you're 59 and a half without a penalty. Correct. Um, So you want to have an account that you can invest where you're getting a return you know, that you can have for, you know, other expenses in life. Projects. Projects. Trips. Buying, yeah, buying a new car, buying, you know, whatever. Yeah, I love it. Um, and it's also good to, you know, Matt and I have talked about, you know, diversifying your your assets in terms of investments, but it's also good to diversify your tax liabilities for retirement. So you want to have a couple different buckets of tax liabilities. So um, everything in a brokerage account if you hold the investment for more than one year, it's taxed at the the capital gains tax rate, which is going to be lower than your ordinary income tax rate. Yeah, there's a the maximum threshold on that is twenty percent if you hold it for at least twelve months. And most people aren't even at the twenty percent. I would say the most common that we see are fifteen percent. Yeah, um, but it's yeah. also based on your ordinary income tax rate. Whereas your you know your traditional IRA, you're taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, which is going to be higher than the capital gains rate. That's right. Um, so you know to be able to manage your tax liabilities in retirement, it's good to have these diversified buckets um, of different tax consequences and then also throw in there having a Roth IRA. That's tax-free money that you can pull out and you're not going to get taxed a dime on it because it's already been taxed. I love it. Um, So just how you diversify your investments, you need to diversify your tax liabilities too. Great point. Um, Number four is another one that we've talked about before is talk to your parents about finances. Your parents may be nearing or in retirement, and now is a great time to have an honest discussion with them about their plans and their finances to get a better understanding of whether you may need to provide some support in the future. We're seeing more and more of this, listeners. Mm-hmm. So in our practice, you know, we have clients that are in their 40s and 50s, and it's not necessarily the conversation of, hey, I have this inheritance coming. It's the conversation of, hey, I got this cash flow liability because I need to be helping take care of mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So again, we won't beat the drum on that too much because we talked about it before, but definitely important conversations to have. And number five, 
is create a financial plan. As your financial situation becomes more complex, it's even more important that you have a clear view of your assets, liabilities, and broader financial status. A well-designed financial plan will give you that. And again, something else we've also discussed, um, just having a plan in place uh, makes this stuff more tangible and more apt to follow than just saying, hey, yeah, I'm going to contribute this amount every month to my 401k or traditional IRA, and then in 30 years, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, so in our practice, um, uh, Aaron Kramer is our uh, our dedicated paraplanner listeners. And what he has the ability to do is um, we subscribe to some really, really good financial planning software from a company called Right Capital. And um, I would encourage you that if you have an interest in um, talking to Aaron about uh, creating a formal plan, definitely would encourage you to reach out uh, to Mark, um, mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. He can get you connected with Aaron. The software is slick because you can, once it's set up, you can go in there at any point and in three months, it's uh, it's dynamic. It keeps your progress tracking live. Yeah, yeah. So you can plug in your investments, and it'll automatically track track your account, so you don't have to keep updating it. Yeah, um, and it kind of shows you real time. It's not where just you a, a one time financial plan, but then six months later or a year later, you're like, oh, I have to get it rerun because I don't know how I'm progressing on this goal. The technology that we're utilizing today is amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it takes everything into account. So yep. all of your investment accounts, your bank accounts, um, your liabilities, so credit card debt, car payments, mortgage payment, all your real estate. Um, it gives recommendations if you know doing Roth conversions makes sense for sure. you or where your tax liabilities lie, where we were just talking about yep. that. When and, you retire, the most efficient way to take the income, minimize yeah. taxes, yeah. estate so planning, when to take Social Security, maximize that benefit, and so forth. Yeah, yep. yeah. so okay. it takes into account everything. It's pretty slick. Um, so we do have um, a decent amount of questions this week, Matt. So... Um, Mike wrote us and said, can you clarify the five-year treasury during a recession at an 11% return? Um, so for people that didn't listen last week, we cited a study um, that did um, that looked at how five-year treasury bonds performed during recessionary periods, Mike. And this just looked at I believe it was the previous five, six, or seven recessions that we have had and yep. looked at the performance from the beginning of the recession to the end of the recession and said, hey, how did five-year treasuries perform? Yes. And the average of all those years was 11% return In, during the recessionary period. Yeah, from start to finish. From start to finish. Mm -hmm. So that's what we, what we meant when we were talking about um, five-year treasuries uh, at 11% return during recessions. And I'll throw this out there, Mike. I don't want to steal Mark's thunder, but um, if you were going to say this, I think the other point, Mike, we were trying to make is there are a lot of asset managers out there who have these, what I would call exotic and complex hedges um, that if you believe the market is, say, going to go through a tough period, they're going to market these things as, oh, you know, this investment has the ability to do well uh, or could do well, right? And I think the point of the article is, you know, if you think we're going to go through a rough time, if an investor does, you know, set that stuff aside and just do a basic, plain, vanilla five-year treasury. Yeah. I think that's yeah. part of the point. Yeah, too. no, that's a great point because, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. It's like how, how to hedge your portfolio. Should you have, Market you know, commodity, neutral, et cetera, et cetera. commodities, currencies, gold, silver, 
all this. So we get these questions all the time. And I think that, you know, there are more simple ways to, to hedge your, hedge your portfolio. And I think this is, this is a viable option. We're steak and potato guys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's just one of those things. Like I, like that's the reason we started this podcast. I hate listening to things that I, that I don't understand or that are too, you know, that I have to spend hours and hours and hours of research doing for me to, to fully understand it. Um, you know, so it's, it's better. And I think, I think the simpler, the better in most cases. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And Mike, keep the questions coming. We really Mm -hmm. appreciate that. Um, and then Mary also wrote us, uh, and Mary says with a near horizon for retirement, say two years or less, what percentage of our portfolio should be in low risk assets? And I'll take this one first, Matt. Okay. Um, Mary, we've talked previously on the podcast about uh, several articles and studies that have been done that it almost could be a a negative to be in low risk or fixed income assets more the closer you get to retirement. And the reasoning is this. We've cited several studies in the past before, uh, way earlier when we first started the podcast, that said, hey, if we invested for X amount of time in 50% stock, 50% fixed income, um, so many years out to retirement, people would run out of money. Yeah, with with a with a withdrawal rate of like four or five. Four or five percent. Yeah. 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 So yeah. the risk that you run is that you're not earning enough on your current assets to be sustainable throughout your whole retirement. Yeah, because you'll be digging into principal. Exactly. So this is why I recommend more of an active strategy where, you know, say you have a a manager like Matt and I, that when we feel the risk reward is more favorable, we're going to be more regressive regardless of the person's age. Obviously, we're going to take into account withdrawals and, you know, financial needs in retirement. Absolutely. But um, I don't really think it changes for us based on someone's age alone. If there's, you know more uh reward out there at that time we're going to be more aggressive but if we feel the risk reward is not as favorable then we're going to pull back and we're not going to be as aggressive no i think that's Um, great so i think that's how you should go about looking at that and managing it because again if you're in you know assets that are only growing especially three four yeah three or four percent per year for like a 10 15 year period then you know you're at a risk of of running out of money in retirement, and obviously no one ever wants that to happen. Yeah. Um, so I hope that answered answered your question there, Mary. Yeah, I mean, I'll just um, add thirty more seconds to it uh, for Mary. So the best way I can explain it very simply is ten being most aggressive, one being cash or a CD. For uh, the example Mark was discussing, Mary, you know, we like to play between say a four and an eight, and we have the ability and discretion. Uh, in this example, to be on the higher end of risk when we think the risk reward's favorable, and when we are more pessimistic and we think the risk reward's not favorable, in my example, we'd be closer to a four. And you know, again, it's our judgment, and we we make those changes, but we feel that that creates a, in our opinion, uh, a chance for a better outcome than just moving all your money to f- fixed income yeah. assets. Yep, good yeah. way to say it. Yeah. Um, question from Dennis, uh, Dennis has submitted several questions in the past. So Dennis, we appreciate your contribution to the podcast. Um, Dennis says, I've heard of the term market meltdown with the obvious meaning, but what is a market melt up? Could it have something to do with a steep rise in stocks? 
Do you yeah. want to t- you want to take that, Matt? Oh yeah, I love this question. Yeah, I thought you would. So I'm I'll salivating. give you the first. I'll give you the first Keep look at this coming, one. <laughs> All right. So this when I when I read this question, then when it came in, my immediate thing that I thought of is um, climbing a wall of worry. So a market melt up, in my view, happens when there is disbelief, there is concerns about the economy, but the market keeps moving higher. How could that be? And I think, in my view. It's the better way to say a market melt up is the markets climbing a wall of worry. In essence, we could sit here with a list of things, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, of potential reasons not to be buying stocks six months ago, right? Uncertainty about the Fed. Uncertainty about how corporate earnings were going to be the rest of the year. Uncertainty about U.S.-China trade. And you can keep going down the list, Dennis, right? But what has happened is, as there's been clarity around some of these concerns, money's come into the market. And when there is no more excuses not to buy, then that's a concern for me, right? Think of it from a contrarian standpoint. So market melts up in my view. The better way to say it in my world is you're climbing a wall of worry and, um, I love it. Yeah, and I and as Matt was doing that, I was just trying to find an example for you, Dennis. So if you look at a, a chart of the S&P 500 and you look at it for the year of 2017, that is a good example of a market melt-up where I don't think we had a pullback of 5%. Mm. It's just a steady, just step, 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 step higher. Yep. Um, so if you want an example of that, of what it looks like, then 2017 was a, was a good year to clarify the market melt up. I also think it's kind of like a a taboo media word that was used a lot, the melt up like CNBC used that word a lot yeah. and just kind of overdid it for me. So I personally don't really like the word, but well, the other thing I'll throw out there Dennis is I get on my soapbox about the um, words that the media uses, specifically the financial media, you know, words like surge, plunge, and it's like they'll say this stock surged. In my world, surge, you are got to be a minimum of double digits. Mm-hmm. Minimum. Yeah, I agree. And it's like 2%. Yeah. <laughs> or this stock yeah. plunged. You know, me, the word plunge, you got to be over 20% down. Yeah. It's, it's, Just take everything with a grain of salt, yeah. what, what you hear. Um, and then our last question comes from Matt. And Matt asks, um, do you guys have any preferred strategy for buying stock during earnings season, i.e. before or after reporting? This is a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we got to break it down a little bit. So the first thing I'll throw out there is there are stocks out there that um, no matter if they're going to be reporting earnings in a week or in two and a half months, that um, if it's appropriate for that client, I definitely want that name in the portfolio. Okay, I just don't care. We gotta own that name as an example. I'm not gonna give out right because specifics. we're not because we're not just gonna own that for a quarter. We're gonna yeah. own that for the long term. Okay, so yeah. the thing I'll say is the more aggressive or more speculative the name, the higher probability of volatility after the earnings announcement. So what I mean by that is if a name's going to be reporting next week and it's a, it's a uh, company that's uh, a high flyer um, growing very quickly, you're going to have more volatility up or down after they report earnings, statistically, right? So I think that that is, um, if you're playing a name like that, 
that is like going to the blackjack table or going to the roulette table, right? And you're, and I think it's very speculative in that nature. Yeah, and I think I think it, I think it all depends on your your time horizon with your your investing strategy. So if you're a short term trader and you only hold positions for you know a couple of weeks or a couple of months, then yeah, maybe you don't want to hold a position going into earnings because you don't know what's going to happen. Or on um, the opposite, you want that uh, volatility on purpose. Yeah, yeah. But that's just not how we do things. Yes. Um, so so we you know are looking long term, um, you know, at least 12 to 18 months down the road. And unless there's a, a huge red flag in their quarterly earnings report, you know, it, we kind of look at that just as, you know, they report earnings four times a year. And if they have one bad report, you know, it's not necessarily, that doesn't mean that it's going to, the stock's going to be down 50% in the next six months. Now I'll give Matt my short answer. So my short answer is I would dollar cost average into the name before and after earnings. So that's my short answer. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, listeners, is let's say that you planned on making a $10,000 investment into a particular stock. I think a way to hedge the earnings volatility, which I said could be negative or positive, is I would buy uh, half before the earnings and the other half after so you can average out your price with that volatility. So the quick answer, Matt, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then to add to that too, and, and that's why we don't have, we don't just hold two or three stocks, right, yep. in a client portfolio. Yep. If you have a diversified portfolio of 20 to 25 different stock names, you know, the thinking there is all 25 stocks aren't going to tank on earnings all in the same quarter. Yeah, right? in, our, in, our, in general, we like to be agnostic on uh, market cap size, so large, medium, small. And we're also agnostic on uh, growth or value. Mm -hmm. So we go anywhere. And different areas of the market. Absolutely. Yeah, different sectors. So Matt, thanks for the question. Keep them coming. Yep. Um, so a little bit of a longer uh, episode today. So we'll, we'll let you guys go. Um, anything you want to add before we finish up, Matt? Uh, we are going to be out of the office next week on a team trip. Uh, yes. So we won't, we will not be recording a podcast next week. Thank you. I forgot about that. Yep. And, uh, um, it's the firm's 10 year anniversary yeah. since, uh, it was started in November of 2009. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll still be accessible by phone if people need to talk to us, but, um, we will be out of the office and won't have our podcasting materials with us for this trip. So um, we will be back with you all um, in two weeks Correct. Um, to record the next uh, episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. But thank you for listening, listening to the 20th episode. And we hope that it's been uh, as fun as uh, for you all that it has been for, for Matt and I. So uh, here's to 20 more, 20 more episodes. Thanks, listeners. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. 
Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.